The following podcast contains explicit language. All right, well, we went to the Sundance Film Festival as a podcast, the three panelists plus uh, super producer Benjamin Frisch. We recorded two segments live to tape in front of a really raucous and fun and very warm audience. We were beautifully hosted at the festival. Then we returned to the studio to talk about a film that took away a prize at the festival. That's the uh, documentary Three Identical Strangers. We have endorsements live from our MTV Swiss Chalet house uh, in uh, Utah. Anyway, to conclude, what follows is an exciting whirlwind tour of our really, really fun uh, time at Sundance. So I hope you enjoy it uh, as much as we did. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the What Is It Exactly? A Hybrid, Neither Fish Nor Fowl, It's Surf and Turf a joint joint between the Slate Culture Gap Fest and represent whatever it is we are 100% unadulterated live from the Sundance Film Festival. <laughs> Julia, do you do you exist beyond binaries now? Do you feel yourself taking on the shape of water? Uh, 13 nominations worth of, yes, yes. Of, of shapelessness, yeah. I'm an aquatic fish man, is what you're saying? <laughs> Read into it, whatever is you want. Is that an upgrade? Okay. All right, it's, uh, it's Wednesday, January 31st, 2018. On today's show, Represent and the Slate Culture Gap Fest will join forces to discuss the Oscar nominations, which uh, came out this morning at 7 a.m. Utah time. I love Utah time. And then finally, a free-for-all in which we discuss our Google Arts and Culture selfies. Yeah, joining me today is Slate's editrix, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. <laughs> and, of course, Slate's, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Dana. Hello, Stephen. Hey. And Aisha Harris, who's a hostess of the Represent podcast, but also a very extremely special friend of our program as well. Aisha. Hello. to be doing a show with you. Yeah, same. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the rare uh, live uh, segment for which I've prepared almost no intro. Um, the, uh, uh, the sins of omission and commission list came out this morning, the Oscar nominations. And I just want to uh, play with the room a little bit for a second. I'm, I'm going to say the word meaningful. And if you think this list or the consequences of it at the actual awards ceremony are meaningful, you shout meaningful. And then we'll do the same with meaningless. All right. Meaningful. I love you. Oh, this is one good-looking crowd. <laughs> Meaningless. Meaningless. All right. Well, uh, I, <laughs> that's, you, you performed beautifully, I have to say. <laughs> is this a room full of buffs and insiders? Are you all buffs and insiders? I don't think buffs and insiders applaud, Steve. No. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Fell for the short con, because nothing makes me more comfortable than a room full of buffs and insiders. When talking about film, okay, uh, I'm I'm going to throw it right away to the film critic, uh, Dana. I feel like there were a, there, there was an unusual variety of movies this year that filled me with cinema cinema going joy, but in very very different ways. And um, I do not need the Academy to ratify any one of those for me and elevate it supposedly above the rest, but I do need them to ratify my prejudices and hates. <laughs> so I will just say, I'm not going to name any names, but there are a couple that if they, if they win over some of these others, I'll be very upset. Well, we're here to name names. What else are we yeah, here to do? Yeah, what is this coy segment? <laughs> Get, look, no one cares what I think. Dana, you're the film critic. What, did, what jumped out at you I about mean, this I mean, first of all, I would have one response to the meaningful, meaningless dichotomy, which is that, I mean, sort of, emotionally and aesthetically I'm on the side of who cares about the Oscars right because it's so overhyped and it's obviously not what film is about trying to chase after awards and award season is so sort of tacky and over glitzy but it's very meaningful to the film industry what gets recognized for awards right it's meaningful to what is able to be made in the future and it's it's meaningful to for you know representation on screen and it's it, what happens in the Oscars whether we like it or not is something that has an enormous impact on the culture industry right so in that sense Sense, even though I rarely get emotionally invested in the Oscars because it's just a way to be disappointed that your favorites aren't being recognized, um, I do get excited about lists like this, you know, announcements like this where it seems like so much good work 
is coming out in a year and getting rewarded. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, I mean, I'm just grabbing the nominees here so I don't get anything wrong, but, you know, seeing Call Me By Your Name come up for Best Picture and and also get a Best Actor nomination, seeing Lady Bird make Greta Gerwig the first, I think she's the sixth woman nominee ever. The fifth. And uh, and obviously only one, Catherine Bigelow has only one. Or to see Jordan Peele's movie, very first movie, get out, get all of this recognition, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't get any further, just the fact that he broke a record too, an interesting record I didn't know about. He's the first... The third person, sorry, only the third person in Academy history to get nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay all at once. It's previously happened for, I think, Warren Beatty for Heaven Can Wait and for James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. So he's the first black man, obviously, but only the third person that's ever happened to at all. So stuff like that really feels like the Academy is opening up and things are changing, and that seems exciting. So there's a lot of outcomes from this award season that I could imagine being satisfied with in, in, in the kind of industry sense like that's a healthy thing to have happen for the industry mm-hmm. I don't, what do you think Aisha? I mean I think also what I like about this season is that it's really up in the air what could win I, I feel like last year last year we all thought La La Land was going to win and then thankfully it didn't but, but there was like a front runner whereas here three billboards might be but maybe not because Martin Madonna didn't get the Best directing. uh, And that's really rare, right? A movie almost never wins if the director is not nominated. Right. So it's, I I, I like how, and and there's so many movies to choose from, I think, that I really enjoyed. You've already mentioned a few of them Lady Bird, uh, Call Me By Your Name, Get Out, Um, but also even The Shape of Water. Like, it seems like the wealth has been spread, and I like that. So I really appreciate that, like, I can go into it. And if one doesn't, if one doesn't win, the other one that does win, I probably will like and appreciate it. Except for one, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you guys a question about just the process here? So, you know, this year a number of movies are nominated that uh, it seems like film buffs like yourselves really like and enjoy. I feel excited about a bunch of the movies that got nominated. I think generally last year seemed like it was a good year for movies. Um, Do we attribute this to some of the changes that the Academy's made in response to Oscar So White a couple years ago to make voting members younger, more diverse, to try to have a uh, different representative body be making these decisions? Do we think it, you know, so that's like one theory and it seems like it's off-sided today. The other thing that I've been wondering, though, is whether there might be another factor, which is does anybody make the movies in the middle anymore? Like, it seems like in a way at this point it's just you know, uh, comic book movies that are not Oscar t- contenders and then the very creme de la creme and the sort of middle brow, mishmush type movie that the film buffs like yourselves would have rolled their eyes at getting the award six years ago. Um, well, maybe you, could argue, you could argue that The Post is one of those middle brow. I mean, I'm, I like The Post better than I think any of you guys did, but I think it's certainly one of those mainstream, crowd-pleasing, take your grandma to the mall and see this movie <laughs> kind of movies. And I say that in a loving way. Like, grandmas need to go to the mall and see movies. And what's the movie with um, Gary Oldman, which I still haven't oh, seen yeah, yet? Darkest Hour, Dark- right. Another, another like... one that's in that biopic kind of traditional right. mold. So they're still there. It's yeah. just more even. We did hit upon the first sin of commission though which is that uh, of omission I'm sorry is that uh, Wonder Woman got zero nods uh, and there was some thinking when it came out it might Yeah that doesn't through. really surprise me so did Star Wars you know I mean it's I think that that still hasn't happened the well Logan yeah. did Logan which is a sort of superhero movie mm-hmm. well, Star Wars, western I think, got, got a, a nom. special effects Star Wars got some score. special effects and also a music for John Williams a music nomination but I don't think it's that surprising I mean when they opened up the category to 10 a few years ago now 5 years ago or something the best picture category expanded from 5 to 10 and the idea was let's get in some more big mainstream movies that people actually go to you know that the the average american will have seen so that more people will tune into the telecast basically. Basically. And that doesn't seem to have resulted in a lot of shooing in of, of big blockbusters to that category yet. Okay, can we hit on one other sin of omission near and dear to both of our hearts? We haven't talked about it yet on the show, but The Florida Project turns out is a fucking marvelous movie in my estimation. Yeah. I mean, really an, really an extraordinary act of like cinematic love. And it really it reminded me of 400 Blows. It's like it's never has a movie been served more poorly by its trailer, which made it look like some treacly story of the white, you know, uh, grand paternal savior figure in Willem Dafoe coming in and taking over these kids when um, uh, the mother fails. And it, it, I was uninterested in seeing that movie and I was gripped completely by uh, the movie that I did see 
Yeah. Yeah, that is a bit odd. I, I wish it had right? gotten more representation. Defoe was the only nomination and that it got. And he's terrific, and he deserves it. Should we go around uh, what win would make your heart leap highest and what loss would make it break most audibly? Well, I'm already still upset that Tiffany Haddish did not get a nomination, but... Yeah, she got to announce them. That was a bummer, right? <laughs> yes. She announces the nominations, but doesn't get one. I know. Um, ooh. I guess the thing that would make me the most excited would be for, yeah, for Get Out to win Best Picture, I think. Um, it would be awesome to have, like, back-to-back Moonlight and Get Out in, like, in a row. It's just... It'd be amazing. As far as... What would make me upset? Well, three billboards. <laughs> Getting any recognition at all or only best picture? Uh, well, Frances McDormand, she actually, when I, when I first saw the movie, I actually really liked it. Um, and I say that because Frances McDormand is a hell of a drug. She like convinced me <laughs> that this movie was really great. And then the more I thought about it, the more criticism I heard, I was like, wait, this was kind of screwed up. Um, so I do, I do think that if it wins, it could be the crash of 2018. You, you really spoke my feelings about uh, Three Billboards just now. I gave it a generally positive review, although I said it fell apart in the last half. And, I, and one of the, I think maybe my, my kicker in the review was give Frances McDormand an Oscar. She's great. I would love to see her win. Um, but there's so many other good nominees that that's not, I'm not going to tie my heartbreak up in that one. I would say Get Out for Best Picture would fill me with joy. Uh, seeing Paul Thomas Anderson get recognition for Best Director, seeing, seeing Phantom Thread win anything would give me joy, but Daniel Day-Lewis seems like a, the most likely win from that. I'd like to see something else maybe uh, happen for Phantom know, Thread. I think Timothy Chalamet is probably going to take that. You think so? You think so? I, feel, I feel like he has momentum. Really? Although it is Daniel Day-Lewis' last, last role. So, his last role. So he, so, so he said. <laughs> there were air and, quotes. And Chalamet has so much career listeners. ahead. Air quotes, sorry. Yeah. Chalamet, I think, is the youngest or second youngest Best Actor nominee ever. So he has, like, a lot of movies still to make. Um, but, yeah, it'd be, it'd be sweet to see him win, too, and he'd give a great speech. I don't know. I don't, like I say, I, I really don't have that many emotional dogs in the fight of the Oscars. There's stuff that would make me happy, but I don't think there's that many things that would break my heart. What about you, Julia? Uh, this is going to get repetitive. I mean, I wrote my like creed decor for Slate explaining that I thought all of the voting bodies would be insane to pick anything but get out for any Best Picture award in any of the awards that we've just run through. Like, it's a movie that, in addition to being excellent and surprising and a fresh voice full of great performances with maybe some quibbles about the ending from our first guest, but still like a, a very interesting, fully realized, amazing thing. Um, it's just like a movie that made everybody talk and think in and and movies are less and less the medium that do that. And so, lots of people paid to go see it. Yeah, well like, the box office part I it was a hit but I don't th- it, the argument to me is not that it's a hit it's that it was important. Like it was it was a part of the conversation in a way that movies are decreasingly so and that basically everybody who votes for these awards all of the voting bodies are people who have a stake in movies continuing to matter and for me like a vote for get out is a vote for movies continuing to right. matter. Not that any of these other some of these other movies aren't lovely. I loved Lady Bird as a person who has a really loving mom that I had a tempestuous teenage relationship with that was only um, mollified through discount bargain shopping and uh, like idle real estate looking like I really related to that movie in a lot of ways but it it was like a lovely beautifully wrought coming of age story but um, not as fresh to me as as Get Out so I'm rooting for Get Out to win Uh, I was really struck in the nominations this morning by a couple of the just super egregious records that the Oscars have and I know we've been talking about representation in the Oscars and the bad job that these awards bodies have done for so long and we've been learning so much about some of the background factors of why that might be so but the fact that Greta Gerwig is the fifth woman ever to be nominated as best director is insane it's insane like the record in movie making compared to journalism or you know medicine like it's insane how uh, rarely women have the opportunity to to be the bosses uh, including in crew roles right Rachel Morrison is that her name the cinematographer yeah. for Mudbound is the first female cinematographer ever nominated ever to be nominated but, I mean if you honestly that's look back that's crazy right but it's not like there was a wealth of female cinematographers out there for generations waiting to be nominated either I mean it's really a bottom up kind of problem I know but somehow seeing those like t- to me if Greta Gerwig won for best director Rachel, I mean we saw Mudbound we interviewed Dee Rees uh, in our show in Toronto I didn't think that was a perfect movie I thought there was a lot of amazing things about it but I just feel like I'm rooting for Rachel Morrison because 
like give well, up. Give. In that category, though, that there's a little bit of a, uh, actual film knowledge is about to be dropped. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. There's there's a certain contingent that I'm kind of part of that really feels like. Come on, Roger Deakins is a legendary yeah. cinematographer, and he's been up for an award like 16, 16 times, I and he's never won. He's never. And Blade Runner 2049, which is the movie he shot this year, looks incredible. Whatever else you think about that movie, that was the best part of that film. movie was the cinematography. So I'm kind of a Deakins head for that, but but of course it would be fantastic to see Rachel Morrison take it too. Yeah, I'm excited about all of that, and then three billboards. I mean, we did a segment about it where we tried to put our finger on exactly what was so unsatisfying about it. But it is, it's curdling. It's just like rotten milk in the American fridge. And it's just getting worse and worse as we all think about it. And it's the thing that I keep like trying to, um, should should I I let folks in on the slate process? We have this... um, uh, we ran a piece when Argo won Best Picture a couple of years ago called Argo Fuck Yourself. It was just like, a, we wrote it before it won the Oscar and we're just, it was just like a description of why the movie, though a fine film, was not uh, the finest that cinema had to offer that year. And so we've been trying to look around in-house for uh, our... We did it again with The Revenant too. Yeah, just like we've, we're, we're trying to figure out who can write the truly satisfying explanation of exactly what's so so wrong with three billboards wesley morris had a beautiful piece in the times about it last week which i think helped illuminate some of it but the thing that that's frustrating to me about it is that it has it's like a facsimile of a good movie it can like put one over on great critics like you it can hold you in the spell of francis mcdormand and then you start to think about it and you're like there's no fucking way here i guess i shouldn't spoil the movie um, so uh, I was going to say Chalamet, but if he's the front runner, I'm not going to say that. So I think <laughs> from this list, and let me quickly say why a movie that grossed a lot of money would cheer me up if it won. It's because conferring importance on movies that gross $9 million worldwide is heartening and important to do when the movie is right, but it gets disheartening over time when you do that over and over and over again. I think importance going with commercial success and eyeballs and ordinary moviegoers seeing that the movie out in the multiplex and have it mean something to them, I think is a huge part of Hollywood history. And for that to go away, especially as a feature of the Academy Awards, so that we're only recognizing small independent cinema while everyone actually goes and sees you know, Fast and Furious number 92, that to me is a sadness. So anyway, I am rooting for Get Out, but uh, the, I'll give you the uh, the one that would make my heart really, really jump up, even though I, everyone on the list deserves to win would be Mary J. Blige from Mudbound. She gives an extraordinary performance. I had no idea it was her until the movie was over. She just she just gives a fucking amazing performance in that movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, she's worth the price of admission alone. Uh, and then it would break my heart if the curdling milk in the American fridge, in all its glib sadism, were to win. All right, uh, here's where I would sort of on autopilot say something like come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think about the Oscar nominations. I don't know why you're looking at me. Seems reasonable. Very good. All right, should we we move on? Uh, We here at uh, the Slate Culture Gap Fest, we like our arts, we like our culture. Uh, We're somewhat less sure about Google and selfies, but it having gone viral, we thought we'd talk uh, about the app which lets you upload a photo of yourself, then have it matched to your art history doppelganger. This is your portrait in a museum feature of the Google Arts and Culture app. It now has 30 million downloads. It's been called the Shazam for art, though on reflection, that makes almost no sense. Um, oh, wait, can I jump in there? There's, that's always. not actually what the Shazam for art is on the Google Arts and Culture app. <sighs> <laughs> There's a... We will get to the selfies, but there is a really cool thing on this, oh, this they have Google Arts and Culture app for art? that's called the Art Recognizer. Cool. Okay. And so you can actually, you know, take a picture of a piece of art, and if it's in their database, it will tell you what it is. It's Shazam right, for so Art. So there's Very this cool. other cool thing that we're not talking about, and then there's this. So... <laughs> So I woke up and in the spirit of fun, I, my hair was all funny and I hadn't shaved and I put it in and up came Steve Bannon. He's just, not in any portrait just, gallery. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've got Steve as Philip III of Spain with quite a mustache. I mean, who wants to take the first shot? <laughs> all right. We, we need to describe this for listeners who can't see it. So, so side by side with Steve on the split screen with the, uh, his Google Arts double is 
Philip III of Spain, painted by Andres Lopez Polanco, and he's kind of like a redheaded fop with a huge neck ruff and a mustache. <laughs> Do you see the similarity there? Do you see why they read you as Philip III of Spain? Well, I wear a no-scratch collar in the morning, so <laughs> that goes with the ruff. Um, I don't know. There's sort of a dreamy, I don't have to work for a living look in the eyes. <laughs> I don't have that facial hair yet, but it's coming. I can't tell what fa- what in the facial recognition software matched you with that. <laughs> I think it's the eye, like the eyebrows look. The, the, I don't know. It the outline be. of your glasses, I think, makes you look a slightly more devilish because he has like a devilish kind of glean going on. Well, eyes. if you play with this and you wear glasses, it's interesting to try it with and without because it finds completely different faces. Obviously, reading the glasses um, as a feature of your face, and there are surprisingly few kind of master paintings of people with glasses. <laughs> so <laughs> there's yeah, there's surprisingly few master paintings of a bunch of things, which we'll get to. But um, all right, so that was Steve. Can we see the, who's next? Oh, Dana. Yeah. Oh yeah, this was one of my favorites. It wasn't the biggest match wait, wait, that I got. Which one but- is Dana? <laughs> this is Dana as Mamie Eisenhower, as painted by Thomas Edgar Stevens. It's the White House official portrait of Mamie Eisenhower. This was one of my favorite matches, even though it's only fifty-seven percent match. I feel like I need to get like the the pearl earrings and the dowdy fifties hairdo to really complete the look. But I don't think that's a, a terrible match, me yeah, and Mamie. I never would have thought that you looked like Mamie Eisenhower, but actually, it's something about your nose mouth interface is not dissimilar <laughs> slash jawline shape. I, the, the crazy thing about this app is it makes you carve up the faces of people you know into their distinct visual parts. Like one thing I do like about it is it makes you think about it, what it would be like to be an artist and try to render a face, but actually have to be like, so what's the deal with her nose? Like what's the deal with Dana's jaw? She's got a Mamie Eisenhower jaw, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I it makes you see differently, I think. Another Dana. Oh, yeah. Here's my aspirational one, because <laughs> I got matched with an actual pretty subject. Uh, George W. Bellas is the painter. The painting is Emma in a purple dress. And uh, for this one, I did wear my glasses. I don't know why they matched me with her. Okay, here comes somebody else. Oh, no, there's no, three but of It's me. all you, Dana. The, this, the rest of this is all you. <laughs> yeah, this one I sent to our producer with a note. When you think you're looking good, but you're actually an 18th century fop. <laughs> <laughs> 18th century fop owns happen a lot. All right, here's, here's one of me, portrait of Mrs. G. Vulgaris by P.J. Francesco, a very, very severe looking woman with a long face and a pointy chin. I was, this was my aspirational one. Um, portrait of the painter's wife by Claudia Lorenzal. Uh, it's kind of a sardonic looking side eye giving woman with her chin leaning on her hand. This does not actually look like me that much though, I don't think. Um, I was also given this <laughs> problematic match where uh, I was made to look like a Bannock Indian painted by Alfred Jacob Miller, American, 1810 to 1874. You can imagine what his rendering of a Bannock Indian might be. It does not look like me. Um, although when you come down to like, what is the face, underlying facial structure here? It's, there's something there. there. I think there's like more actually than the woman I with her chin on her hand. The lo- What do you call these? The whatever these lines are, the frown, the frown lines? I, I think that is what you call them, Aisha. Wait, here's yours. <laughs> Let's move on. I was surprised that they had black ones, so I was pleased. Um, yeah, I found that they, fo- I, all of these really focused on the nose and the lips for me. Uh, and it, it made me talk about like, sort of carving out your face. If I, if this, if I had done this probably like when I was five or 10 I would have hated it because I used to hate my nose I was like it's too big um now I love it but I can see how it could cause people to like look into look at themselves and harshly criticize themselves by comparing this that looks nothing like me this one is the new generation by Papa Opong Badaiku I think I pronounced that right yeah she has cheekbones that I will never have and I guess it's the lips that's also almost like an, an animated, right? It, she like looks a like a figure. She looks something. like a bar, like a black Barbie, basically. And I am not a black Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm curious what your experience was going through the app, Aisha, because you know, if you are white, there are many representations of white people in the history of Western art, which is most of what this app seems to be drawing on. And there's many fewer representations of people of color. 
And I do think they find cross-racial matches, um, but I also feel like some of the, like, that first portrait has something in the, like, arc of your nose and forehead and like looks like Aisha the second one is like that is just a painting of a black woman it does not yeah. look at all like Aisha just a completely different looking black woman yeah and and I wonder what the experience was for you of playing with the app and kind of seeing what your matches were and what they weren't well it's funny I didn't I don't think I got any cross-racial ones when I played with it they were all black or at least brown um but it, it, it was it was a little weird because first of all i'd never even seen any of the portraits like unlike some of the ones that have popped up for other people who have done them like oh i saw that in a museum or i saw that in a in a book and these i've just like i don't i've never seen these before a lot of them seem like they were much newer um more recent art i mean the the black barbie one was definitely probably at least within the last 10 to 15 years she um, has earbuds in so it can't be that old yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah it's probably within the last 10 to 15 years um but yeah it i i really do feel like this is this is an app more for white people than it is for for people of color to, to see themselves well and and getting beyond this app facial recognition software in general it seems has not been it hasn't been designed it hasn't been optimized to look at different kinds of faces wasn't it there a different google app um that was like from a couple years ago where they would tell you there was a caption it would caption based on facial recognition and there was this kerfuffle because these two black people it the caption google automatically generated was gorillas and it's like just because they had dark skin and that was it um right. i don't remember what had the, no had no way of reading that color right, right. so you, you can see how things can go wrong very quickly when you when you try to do any sort of facial recognition because not all of us look alike i do think though that this app has a different situation i mean there there've been a ton of uh, AI fails around race that I think have a lot to do with the demographics of de- software companies and the places that are making these things. So there was the Google one, which was famous and where uh, they sort of immediately changed the code. And I think they admitted that they had, as they were testing the algorithm, they hadn't tested it on very many black subjects. And, you know, there were just all of these kind of errors of planning and creation and they had to quickly shut that down. And it's like, why did you build that? Like, oh, why didn't you think about that? And then I think the other area where we've seen this is in Snapchat filters where um, we're seeing things that are being built quite thoughtlessly. To me, the question here, the, the combination between questions of representation and art, who had enough money to make art, buy pigments, commission people to to make representations of humans decide that those representations of humans belonged in museums and then should be digitized. And then the institution should have enough resources to share those digitized images with Google. Like there were millennia of historical circumstances and problems that lead to like, who are the faces in the body of art that Google has. But that strikes me as somewhat different than a set of modern decision makers being thoughtless about the state of race today. And I did find in playing with the app that on the one hand, you see the kinds of roles that women are in and the kinds of roles that men are in, which are, there's a lot of, pretty much everyone can find their fop or (laughs) there's a lot of paintings of fops. I guess that makes sense. They like to be looked at. Um, But... uh, there is this way in which, like, I've gotten a bunch of different cross-racial matches within it, and I'd be curious if you kept playing around whether you would never find any or whether you might find some. But, like, it, it does make you separate out immediately reading the face as a face that belongs to an ethnicity versus reading the underlying features of a face. And it does remind me of this thing that I love about museum going where you can find you just find these modern faces staring back at you from art through the millennia and you feel the continuity of human experience at the same time. And so, you know, the, the, I can completely recognize why it would feel less fun to play with this app, but I also feel like the set of problems with this app strike me as somewhat distinct from the set of like dumb racial coding fails that we've seen from some other outlets. Well, it also makes you think about beauty standards in general through the the decades and generations, right? Because there's so many kind of idealized portraits of a beautiful woman from a few centuries ago that now strike us as a sort of pouchy-faced, dumpy, you know, right? I mean, there's just a whole different look of like what a beautiful face was in, I don't know, 1600 compared sure. to now. And it raises the question of, you know, how do class 
stratified and racially hierarchical societies of the past, like how did they try to reach through those categories to something they regarded as human? And as you walk through a you know gallery filled with handsome oil paintings commissioned by the rich, do you feel as though you're seeing that reflected in them at some level, or are you simply seeing the expressions of a you know highly stratified, self-interested and hypocritical society, you know, as they come down to our highly stratified, self-interested and hypocritical society? And that, of course, also depends on kind of the the quality of the painting and the painter. You well, know? right, but that but how separable is that aesthetic judgment from an apprehension of? the human suffering that went into producing the beautiful object. Anyway, well, that's but I'm a just question saying, for, for example, that, just as an example of a painter who I think kind of transcends his time in terms of making portraits that seem to be about the human history behind the portrait and not just presenting someone in a way that they would want to be presented or that the artist wants to see them is Rembrandt, right? I mean, Rembrandt's sure. portraits have this kind of timeless quality that they could be a guy on the, a, the corner today that, that was just painted. Right, and I, I agree with you, right? I mean, and there's nothing like walking through a doorway in a museum and coming unexpectedly upon a Rembrandt face looking at you and you're separated by one thing which is time and to feel that distance close in the instant because you feel as though that's something alive and human looking at you and that elicits what's alive and human about you at the same time you know there's um uh, another set of distances, which is how utterly uh, 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 different in preconception of uh, in self-conception that society was that produced that particular image in some way. And are you going to level a judgment against those self-conceptions or not? But I, I, I'm going to make a much more trivial point, which is: isn't this kind of just like Mad Libs with faces? It doesn't <laughs> freaking so? matter what picture comes up at all. It's just the. What, I mean, what exactly is the? I mean, do we believe that this algorithm actually is doing something scientific with our bone structure, or is it just ha ha ha? I'm a Renaissance fop. <laughs> I mean, it could be anything. Like I'm a labradoodle. I I don't know. I think you had to play with it more than. I think Dana and I, it seems like, sunk the most time into, like, just go, going down the art history rabbit hole. And there's always something that's real in the... There's, like... Well, not always, I guess, because, uh, as we saw with Aisha's portrait, that was insane. But um, there's often just different little threads. Like, there's some... I believe... It's, it's, I don't think it's a big joke on us. I mean, I, the thing I love about it is, as these collections of art get digitized, and as more kinds of collections get art of art get digitized it's the kind of thing where you think like ah the beauty of the internet information at everybody's fingertips we live in a new nirvana hooray and then you're like how much time do i spend like going through the met's galleries and just being like now all the art's at my fingertips i don't what this app does brilliantly is peg modern narcissism to the exploration of art history (laughs) and like gets you to engage with these available databases because of your own vanity and curiosity and self-regard and uh, it worked on me, Turner. and I enjoyed it. <laughs> Turner for the win, I think. <laughs> I feel like as far as memes go, that was a pretty fun meme. I enjoyed seeing my friends match themselves with art history, whether they look like it or not, whether the software is ridiculous or not. It's, it's a really good in into what is, seems like a really excellent and much broader um, arts and culture app. Okay, so you do not get a traditional uh, Slate Culture Gap Fest outro. We pre-recorded the endorsements, but I did want to say thank you very, very much to the Sundance Film Festival for hosting us and to Dropbox for sponsoring us and most of all to a wonderful group of listeners to come out and listen to us. Uh, We really appreciate your support and your presence here tonight. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. The documentary Three Identical Strangers won a special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival. We have since watched it and now we're here to discuss it. It is an incredible film built on one tottering improbability on top of another. The movie begins with a young man discovering that he has an identical twin he never knew about. He was adopted, his brother was adopted, and then one astonishing revelation follows upon another. It turns out that they have a third brother, they are triplets, they reunite with one another, they go into business with one another, but the happy story takes a sinister twist. Let's listen to a clip. I finally made it to this dump of a dorm room. And before a minute had gone by, who now? Who now is going to come to find Eddie? I had been at college the previous year with Eddie, and I knew that he wasn't coming back to school. As soon as this guy turned around, I, I, I I was actually shaking. I was... I, I know I, the color from my face dropped because I knew it was his double. 
the first thing out of my mouth was, were you adopted? And, and I was like, yes. I said, is your birthday July 12th? He said, yes. I was like, July 12th, 1961. Oh, my God. I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, you have a twin brother. You have a twin. Oh, my God. All right, Dana. Well, I have to. I think we should admit up front that that we're caught in a little bit of an epistemological vice here, if you will, because um, if one were recommending this documentary to someone, which I would do enthusiastically, you wouldn't want them to go in thinking it's just a movie about a heartwarming reunion. It is so much more than that. What happens is quite astonishing as it unfolds, and yet we don't really want to spoil it. So, um, anyway, I, I'll begin just by saying that I was riveted by it, and I wondered if you were too. Oh, yeah. This documentary is great. It's sort of it's got that thing that every documentarian dreams of. And I'm sure the director, Tim Wardle, was really excited in exploring this already interesting story that this happened. But, you know, there's this this will often happen in Errol Morris documentary because they're investigative journalism in a way, in addition to being storytelling. But um, but things develop in this story that couldn't have been foreseen at the beginning. And in the process of investigating, along with Lawrence Wright, the, the New Yorker writer um, toward the end, this this story of the three brothers and how they got back together, but also very importantly, how they got separated in the first place. All kinds of questions come up that I guess I will tiptoe around by saying that they have to do with uh, the ethics of adoption and with the struggle for identity and with nature versus nurture debates and uh, and a whole bunch of unexpected things unfurl. Julia, what do you think of the movie? It's so good. I mean, as the mother of twins, non-identical twins, um, I think I am particularly interested in this story of the bond between triplets and their reunion and um, their embrace of what makes them similar, even though they've been raised completely separately, and then their eventual discovery of ways in which they are distinct. Um, And it, it really is a story that gets at kind of the fundamental question of how we become who we become uh, and also raises really interesting ethical questions about adoption and research along the way. Um, but it is, I, I think part of why it's so good has to do with the fact that it's actually a story that's been told before. Like you think, holy mackerel, this is crazy. I can't believe anything like this has happened. The movie has a very canny way of of presenting people talking about the story using the exact same phrase. They all say, this is amazing. I mean, it's almost incredible. And the the word incredible is used over and over again to mean not just wowza, but also basically unbelievable how, how crazy the story is. But it's so unbelievable and incredible and amazing that it was covered widely at the time. And in fact, when the the triplets had this reunion in the early 80s, they became sort of celebrities on the New York club scene and uh, briefly are featured in Desperately Seeking Susan. And But I think one thing that's interesting is that this is a story that's has appeal on so many levels. There was sort of the initial shocking appeal that made it kind of a New York City tabloid story in the early 80s. Um, then the great journalist Lawrence Wright becomes a character because in his work on twin studies in the 90s, he became aware of the story and did some reporting around it. Uh, and then the documentary... Um, kind of revisits it again here 20 years after that uh, and finds new depths, new materials, new characters, and and I think a new a new story to tell. Well, Dana, the movie, you know, raises a host of, you know, completely gripping questions that surround everyone's life, whether you're adopted or not, or separated at birth from a twin, which is, which is it? Is it nature or nurture? Am I playing out some script that's written down in my DNA? Am I self-authoring in some important way? Um, uh, You know, this movie, as much as any, I think we've ever watched in the course of 10 year course of the show really gets at those questions. What, what did you, uh, what did you walk away from this thinking? I mean, your head is just buzzing with all of those things when you when you leave this movie. And and also, you know, you see the emotional trajectory of these three boys, really, who discovered each other at age 19 when they were so full of energy and just starting out their lives. And they were so joyful to have found each other. And so it also becomes, you know, somewhat of a, a sad story about the passage of time and how their different backgrounds and their different temperaments, all these things that they didn't see when they were so excited to be discovering their many similarities, you know, start to, to divide them. Um, but I think one thing that I wanted to ask you Steve, or hear you talk about as a person who was adopted, is um, is sort of the ethics of separating 
twins, triplets in this case, families, basically, um, before the members of those families are old enough to know what separation is. So there's kind of a dialectic in this movie mm-hmm. between um, people like the subjects themselves, the three men and their families, who care very deeply that they were separated at age six months about and uh, and who mm-hmm. really sort of feel like that had an emotional, a negative emotional impact on the rest of their lives. And it was a traumatic separation. And and other people, including a, a much older woman who I believe is Swiss, who uh, who worked with the adoption agency that that split them up, who sees no ethical problem in it at all. And I don't know if that's a generational or cultural thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, she essentially sort of says, well, at that time, you know, we didn't have any sense that it was a huge trauma to divide them up. And it was just a thing that was done, kind of a mid-century, you know, in a way, I, I sort of I see that ethics as not being that separate from the eugenicist kind of ethics that was at work in World War Two. I mean, it's so much more sinister when you, you know, mm-hmm. put it in the service of genocide. But that general idea, that kind of scientific uh, consensus at mid-century that um, that nurture was the most important thing and that, you know, children could be sort of slotted into different environments and be molded the way you mm-hmm. wanted them to be molded. It's just the world that she was coming from. So I wonder, actually, both of you, as a mother of twins, as an adoptee, and just as people, how do you feel about this idea that it's traumatic to separate triplets at birth or soon after? Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought, first of all, I thought this was a wonderful movie in itself, uh, even if it hadn't been a corkscrew right to the heart of my own experience. It, I, I, I think it is a almost flawlessly executed uh, story. Um, but I was, I'm about three years younger than the triplets in this, and I was adopted under very similar circumstances. Uh, I was the, my adoption agency was the WASP version of the Louise Wise agency. It was the Spence Chapin agency. It looks exactly like the one in which they do reenactments. So this is a, a hugely familiar story. And they were closed adoptions the way that this one was? Right, so that's that's a very important point. Like, w- this is an era when the non-traditional family was was, and by non-traditional, I don't mean anything having to do with adoption. I mean just you know, gay, certainly gay marriage, gay adoption wasn't possible. You know, all kinds of fertility treatments weren't happening. Surrogacy, all of this was yet to happen. And if someone was born to a family that or a mother that couldn't properly care for him or her, you know, a closed adoption was going to happen. So it's very important to separate out the protocols mid-century or slightly beyond mid-century protocols governing adoption, which I think were as humane as people could have come up with. And that at the at the center of that is a primal separation, right? You can't, you know, these, in the best of conscience, these kids can't separate out the fact that they were separated from one another from the fact that they were separated from their mother, which is probably the more the more primal separation. So in every adopted kid has that in common. What are you going to do? I mean, if your mother can't care for you, you're going to have to go find an, another home. And so, um, you know, I, I, it, it was, it resonated with me, I should say, up to a point um, beyond which it was unfamiliar. I mean, I just didn't have, I didn't have twin siblings. I don't feel that same fundamental moral shudder at the first revelations of the film, astonishing as they are. The fact that a twin gets separated at birth because it's much harder to place a twin and almost impossible to place triplets. That strikes me as, as just factually correct, and separation may have been inevitable. But there are moral shutters that one any normal viewer is likely to feel subsequently. So uh, I felt that those maybe got slightly muddled, not in any way by the documentary, which treats them with enormous clarity and distinctly, but maybe for the brothers themselves. Julia, the thing that I thought was really interesting was, you know, it it turns out that, you know, treating this simply as a generic, (laughs) a generic triplets reunited. (laughs) Just one of those, one of those stories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Run of the mill, garden variety. Uh, um, you know, they all smoked the same brand of cigarettes. They all wrestled, uh, you know, in high school, uh, were on the wrestling team in high school. They speak the same. They have very similar gestures. Obviously, they're physically nearly indistinguishable, at least at the age of 19. You know, and I thought there was this superficial tendency in the early part of the documentary to be boggled by that. And it it seemed to me as you go on, you begin to see what the differences are. So at first, you're kind of amazed at the mirror-like powers of nature, right? The replicating powers of nature. But as you go on, the ability of nature to shape us, our destiny completely seems rather limited. Yeah. I mean, I think one area where the documentary 
loses you for a minute, I think, or not not quite loses you because I think it is very, very well made, is that the because the brothers know the whole story all along and they know not just that they were separated as triplets, but why they were separated as triplets and the troubled ethics of that, they express a horror at their separation in like the first third of the movie that as a reader, you briefly are like, why are we so mad at this adoption agency? I don't understand. Like, it seems like it would be hard. I mean, when I think about my twin sons who shared a crib for their first four months and then still share a room and the idea of not sharing a room is horrifying to them. And, you know, my husband and I are doing this bi-coastal thing and some person once suggested like, oh, why don't you just put one kid in each place? And I was just like, what's wrong with you? Like, what You don't... monster. <laughs> like, in addition to all the logistical reasons why that would be idiotic, it just would be, it would make this thing that hasn't been tough for our guys so tough. So the pain of separation from any sibling and particularly a twin is real, but in the circumstance of having to find a new home, not with your birth parents, younger than the age of one, which seems like a tough draw for a kid or a draw that, that, um, you know, where fundamentally some things are out of your control, as it is anytime you're born to anybody, you don't you know, you never know what that circumstance will be. Um, the movie briefly makes you think that the horror at its center is just the sheer fact of separation. And so there's like about 10 minutes where the brothers are so aggrieved about that. And you as a watcher are kind of like, what? I mean, yeah, okay, huh. And then the kind of the story in the documentary catches up to the brother's emotions about it. And you're like, okay, I get why we did a like gloomy, rainy reenactment at the adoption agency, which seemed a little uh, baffling at first. I mean, I suppose your response to that is just it would have to be based on how much human experience you think a person has accumulated by age six months and whether those emotional relationships are so strong as for it to be traumatic when they're severed. And uh, that just doesn't seem like something we know enough about to have one monolithic set of opinions or feelings about. But I agree, Julia. When I sort of thought, is this as bad as the trauma is going to get, that an adoption agency had to split up triplets in order to get them homes? I mean, it seems like if those are the two options, find homes for the kids or keep them together, then the decision is already made. You've gone one to find families for them. But uh, but as you say, it's all complicated and enriched by some of the stuff that comes later. And I know people are listening to this saying, come on, get to the meat of it. But I really do think the pleasure of Three Identical Strangers is letting all of that stuff unfold. No, this I mean, the, the award that this documentary won at Sundance was for storytelling. And I think, um, you know, I, I, not being a complete expert on the exact distinctions between all the award definitions at Sundance, although perhaps you are, Dana, having well, been on the jury at some point. I actually can speak to that. You can make up an award for whatever you want, basically. You, uh -huh. can, you have a certain amount of special awards you can give that aren't in set categories. So it sounds like that jury just sat around and said, what is it we like about this doc? What does it do so well? And they picked storytelling. Yeah. So I think, and I, I think that's an apt way to describe what's excellent about this. And um, you know, I, I think we should just recommend that our our listeners seek it out. We do know this documentary was bought at Sundance. There was a deal, so it will be released, but we don't quite know what the details of that deal are. But we'll keep it in mind. And if I hear about Three Identical Strangers coming up, either in theatrical or streaming, I'll be sure to shout it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll track it and keep you all apprised. It was a real treat uh, to see this film. And it it's, you know, both a great story that raises really kind of like the fundamental question about life. Mm. All right. Well, definitely check it out and um, maybe read as little as possible about it going in because I knew nothing. Three minutes in, I thought, why are we watching this? Five minutes in, I was agog. And uh, up through the first hour, I kept writing OMG in my notebook <laughs> uh, one time after another. It is really a really, really well done. <laughs> yes, in triplicate. Thank you very much. That is, it is a, a It's a brilliant movie. You should check it out. All right. Moving on. So we ended up doing endorsements back in the uh, calm of our, our lodge, our ski lodge. Our chalet, I like to call our it. Our chalet, exactly. Um, so now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, my endorsement is an upcycling of something we've already talked about in the show today. Because in all of our playing with the uh, the Google Faces portrait app, I feel like none of us have explored all the other things that Google Arts and Culture does. That this app is essentially just a, a kind of... 
honey honey trap. What do they call it? A honey pot <laughs> to get you into the Google Arts and Culture app, which is kind of amazing. So I just spent some time. You're the one around person who looks past the honey <laughs> <Yeah>. pot. <laughs> that honey pot was real effective. <laughs> They got someone in who's already so nerdy that I would have cared about this stuff anyway. But no, it's just, it seems really, really beautifully done. And if, and it's really built out. Like, I feel like I've scratched the surface of, you know, 10% of what this app has to offer and it's already amazing. So just to scroll through the homepage and look at some of the other offerings besides seeing what doughy Rembrandt portrait you unfortunately <laughs> resemble. <laughs> um, for example, there's a whole gallery on the faces of Indian cinema that's all about women in early Indian cinema that's totally fascinating. I knew nothing about. You can spend a long time scroll- scrolling around in that. There's you could there's all kinds of live things where you can visit um, galleries and look at 360 degree views of different art displays, including these public sculptures at Bondi Beach in our beloved Sydney, Australia, where we went last year. And I didn't get to go to Bondi Beach in the few days we were in Sydney. So you can virtually explore the um, the public art there. My favorite thing I think I found, at least that's up on the homepage right now of the Google Arts and Culture app, is this biography of Bruce Lee's life, an illustrated slideshow biography of the life of Bruce Lee, which I knew nothing about. And, uh, and so I was just looking through that and learning a lot. For example, I always thought that he was a Hong Kong native. To me, Bruce Lee is Hong Kong. He came out of Hong Kong and then he went around the world. But in fact, he was born in San Francisco, Chinatown, and his mother was half American, which I didn't know. So he has this whole American background. And then he, of course, comes back to the U.S. And that also that he began his career in the U.S. upon returning teaching cha-cha dancing because he was this, of course, he could do any physical thing beautifully. He was a a cha-cha dancer, and that was his first employment upon coming back to the U.S. Anyway, um, if you go on the Google Arts and Culture app to identify your doughy renaissance devil spend some more time just looking around at whatever catches your eye on the app because it is essentially a labyrinth of wonderful artfulness that sounds cool julia what do you got pens steve (laughs) i've got pens (laughs) so have you guys heard of bullet journaling where you write about steve mcqueen movies (laughs) (laughs) is that also on the google app Alas, that is not what bullet journaling is. As far as I can tell, bullet journaling is this trend where you take a blank notebook and you make it into a productivity tool by spending 47 jillion hours manually turning it into something you could buy from like daytime or month at a glance. And like you make like a section that's your monthly goals and a section that's your aspirations. It's the whole thing. Bullet journaling. We should probably do it for a segment. I'm getting looks of extreme <laughs> mystification from my compadres here. Aren't there like life hackers to do that for us? Why do we have to arrange our own productivity journals? I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you this. The rise of bullet journaling. I believe the bullets in bullet journaling are because like if you make a to-do list, you might make, you know, like a bulleted list, I think. Um, But it requires apparently a very fine-tipped pen to make all the grids and lists and sub-lists. There's also – here, wait. Let me just read for you guys quickly. (laughs) I'm not on your wavelength yet, but I feel like it could happen. I mean, I'm not on this wavelength. (laughs) I'm actively oppressed by this endorsement. endorsement. Wait, hold on. How does it work? How does it work? Let me read just from this bullet journaling page. I promise this is going to get to a concrete and excellent endorsement soon. But the idea is that you take down quick notes and organize them the way you want by using specific symbols. You write these symbols over the bullets with corresponding tasks or notes. X means done. Open caret means scheduled. Close caret means migrated to another time. Dash means short notes or reminders. Zero means big events or very important items. Looking at this just makes me want to like keel over and give up. I was going to say, is there an icon for staring glazedly into space? I spent two and a half years with a missing tooth. <laughs> is there a symbol for that, Julia? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a tilde. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so this is a trend. It's not one I plan to adopt. It's possibly one we should discuss at some juncture. However, the one positive upside of the rise of this trend, as far as I can tell, is the increasing availability on Amazon 
a very fine-tipped, multicolored <laughs> writing implements. And the ones I'd like to recommend to our listeners today are the Hoo Hoo Hero. <laughs> <laughs> fine liner color pens. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have what she's having. Sorry, let me try that again. <laughs> oh, no. No one can say who hero better than you just said it. Ben, if you cut her mic, you're fired. <laughs> fine liner color pen set, 0.38 millimeter fine line drawing pen, porous fine point <laughs> markers, perfect for coloring book. And bullet journal art projects, comma, pack of 10. <laughs> this is a product I wholeheartedly endorse. I guess I'm sort of endorsing it for my own to-do lists, which are they really less convoluted than bullet journals? Yes, because I don't use those insane symbols. But um, you do use the hoo-hoo hero. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say it again. <laughs> I do use the hoo-hoo hero <laughs> fine liner color pen set. And it's my current favorite writing implement, and I commend it to all of your uh, evaluation and notice. Available on Amazon. I believe it's Japanese. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, all right. Well, first, a piece of good news. The super double secret location has gotten back to me, and it does look like the event may happen in June. Um, so... Woohoo, hero! <laughs> Mark it with... It's my new cry of joy. Yeah. Uh, mark it in your bullet journal. I'm gonna <laughs> wait. Hold on. I'm gonna migrate it to another time <laughs> and, and, and another dimension. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so my endorsement is uh, uh, a little bit on the fly here, but here's what I've come up with: there is a Swedish pop band <laughs> called First Aid Kit. Didn't know about them until two days ago. Love them. But uh, more, uh, maybe slightly more um, uh, curiously is, uh, you know, if you're sort of in the mood to play a record of like piano jazz, right? And you just, you're just, you can't go back to Bill Evans, even though the that well is deep and lucid and refreshing. Red, do you guys know the p- pianist Red Garland? I do not. Oh my God. Red Garland's a genius. And he just had, he just has that, he just has beautiful touch and, and incredible voicing and just swings. He's just, you can't, you almost cannot go wrong with Red Garland. Red Garland deserves to be as well known as Bill Evans. Does he have a specific album or song you'd start with? I mean, he kind of, in the fifties, like Groovy is a really good one. I can't remember the titles of the other one. Maybe Red Garland Swings. I don't know. We'll look him up. We'll put him on the Facebook page. But he made a lot of records in the 50s and 60s. But so consistently good. Like really, just really elegant without being, you know, at all cloying. Or... Did he play solo piano or did he usually have a backup? Uh, I, I, I feel like Red Garland Trio is, I think he's typically with a stand-up bassist and a drummer. But I'm sure there must be some solo stuff too. It's so good. It's, it's really, it's really good. It's really joyous music. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You all right, Julia? Quite fine. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that was our very fun show from Sundance. And just quickly, because we sometimes use this space to announce events that we're participating in, I wanted to let people know about a fun thing that I'm doing this weekend at a bar called Irv's on Beekman Place in Prospect Leffert Gardens in Brooklyn. It's called Critical Drinking. This was organized by A.O. Scott, uh, the critic of The New York Times, and he's going to have me, uh, Bilga Ibiri, who's the critic for The Village Voice, and Alyssa Wilkinson, who writes on movies for Vox.com, all together to do some sort of... I don't know, ill-defined pub quiz, uh, drinking game, panel discussion about movies and the current state of Hollywood. It sounds like cocktail swilling fun. I think there's even going to be cocktails named after movies that we get to choose. I don't know. Just come do critical drinking with me at Irv's if you're going to be in Brooklyn this weekend. It's at 4 p.m. this Sunday, February 4th, which Julia tells me is going to conflict with the Super Bowl. So well, with, you're pre- with pre-gaming, you could pre-game the Super Bowl with Dana. Yeah, you can go into the Super Bowl with a little bit of a movie-related buzz if you come to Critical Drinking at 4 p.m. February 4th at Irv's Bar in Brooklyn. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. And we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. 
and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And uh, we would be completely remiss if we didn't thank Faith Smith for being a tremendous events uh, organizer who got this thing up and running. And our sponsor, Dropbox, was was really great. An old friend of the show, Alice Tynan, now works at Dropbox. She uh, helped make this possible. And, of course, the Sundance Film Festival, which uh, hosted us, I have to say, quite beautifully. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.